Once again we hear the Old Testament reading from Psalm 110, all verses. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The New Testament lesson from which our sermon comes is found in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, through chapter 5, verse 10. And you can find that on page 1003 of your Pew Bibles. Once again, we hear God's word from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through chapter 5, verse 10. This too is the word of God. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, be designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Word of God so far, let us pray that God will bless the preaching of it. Heavenly Father, help us to concentrate on your word this morning. Help us to hear it rightly, and may your servant preach it rightly. Help us to hear the law convicting us of sin and the gospel convicting us of eternal life in Christ alone. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Congregation of Christ and friends, to live in this world is to suffer on many different levels. Some suffering is radical and intense, like direct uh, persecution for being a Christian, or things like cancer. 
But most suffering in this life, as you know, is milder and constant. After all, the Heidelberg Catechism says that our life is lived out in a veil of tears. All people, without exception, suffer and therefore need help. One of the most helpful things is to find someone who can empathize with your problem. That is, someone who has been through what you've been through. Jesus does this, but he doesn't just uh, empathize with you, he really helps you. The author of Hebrews is wide awake to the reality of your needing help. Because of Jesus' perfect priestly work on earth, he has become the perfect priest in heaven so that he can help you in time of need. And that is the point of the sermon. Because Jesus has suffered what you have suffered and has gone beyond that, he can help you in your time of need. So notice the way in which the author argues this in this passage. In verse 14, he says that Jesus has passed through the heavens. That is, he's gone to the highest place of authority in the universe. That is, to the right hand of the Father. Yet, he says in verse 15, you do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with your weakness. That is, Jesus has suffered as you have. He's been through what you've been through. And he even died for your sins. He became a sacrifice for your sins. Jesus understands what you fear. He understands that you fear death, and he's been through that for you. And so then the author goes on in chapter 5 to compare and contrast uh, Jesus the high priest with earthly priests. Earthly priests can relate to you too, at least in Israel's time, because they're beset with weakness. They go through what people go through, yet they sin. Jesus is unlike that, in that he has never sinned. But he has been through what you've been through. So in the sermon, we'll understand clearly that uh, Jesus can relate to you. We'll understand this in three ways. First, you'll know what it is for Jesus to experience human weakness and temptation. Second, Jesus' experience of human weakness and temptation, however, is not just an example. It's a way in which he has worked salvation for you. And third, because Jesus was perfectly obedient, he has become the perfect high priest to help you in time of need. So first of all, we understand that Jesus experienced human weakness and temptation. That is to say, Jesus was and is fully human, just like you. This is very hard for us to understand, but Jesus is just like you. He took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. A real body, a real soul. So the author says in verse 15 that in every respect, Jesus has been tempted as you are, yet he has never sinned. Jesus is like you, being tempted, but he is, he was, will always be sinless. Consider the Heidelberg Catechism 35. It asks, what is the meaning of conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? Children, you know this by now very well. The answer, that the children, son of, uh, that the eternal Son of God, who is and continues true and eternal God, took upon himself the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, by the operation of the Holy Spirit, so that... He might also be the true seed of David, like unto his brethren in all things, except for sin. Even though Jesus remains the eternal Son of God, he is at once a common man, being born through the common line of people. The fact of Jesus' full humanity qualifies him 
to sympathize with what you go through in this life. After all, the author says in chapter 2, verse 17, that Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect. So Jesus calls you brothers and sisters. Jesus is your brother because he's been what you've been through in every respect. You think of that. This gives him the ability to sympathize with you. In this passage, weakness here describes the state of being human. It is to live in this world full of dangers, toils, and trials. Jesus has experienced the state of being human, and so he can relate to your experience of living this life in general and being tempted, yet never sinning. Therefore, Jesus was unlike you with respect to sin, but just like you in feeling the temptation to sin and in suffering the ordinary problems of this life. The author says that Jesus was tempted as you are. He is not referring just to the temptation to sin. Rather, the term in the original for tempted is better translated testing. And testing includes temptation to sin, but also includes the trial of life in general. The point of Jesus' testing was to prove that he could carry out the Father's will. Jesus was human, and he could have easily traded obedience to the Father to live in palaces, to drink the finest food and wine, to have all the power he ever wanted to the exclusion of obedience to the Father to suffer suffering every day of his life, especially at the cross. Now the question is, would he have ever bowed to the temptation to sin? Would Jesus really have ever sinned? No. But he nevertheless understood understood in his life on this earth temptation. He felt it. It was real. And this qualifies him to help you in your time of need. So Jesus' life on earth, note, was characterized by intense testing, not just at certain moments, but overall. Verse 7 of chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. The days of his flesh referred to Jesus' human nature. All of his days, every one of his days, was characterized by this testing. Jesus prayed constantly, but many of these prayers came with loud cries and tears. Jesus was often anguished in body and soul, as you feel in this life. How many days have you had where you thought, I can't handle it any longer? Every day is like a death, or confessions say. Well, Jesus felt that, and more. He was anguished many days of his life. And so Jesus' life was much like yours. We'll see in a moment that his greatest temptation and testing was at the cross, unlike anything you will ever experience. And because Jesus went through all these trials, he can sympathize with you. This is a remarkable reality and has profound implications. I mean, think about how helpful it is when you find people who are willing and able to empathize with you. That is, you find comfort uh, in someone who's been through something that you've been through. So say the person uh, you're talking to has suffered the same event or tragedy, say cancer, and they've survived. The comfort in talking to them is the fact that they have survived. Just knowing that they made it through 
helps you. You have comfort in that. But also, the person is helpful that has experienced the same thing because they've gained wisdom through their problem, through their tragedy. And so they can tell you things to do or tell you ways in which to think about the problem in ways you never thought about before. They can empathize and they can help. Well, so it is with Jesus, right? Jesus suffered in body and soul as you do, and so he knows how to help you in your time of need. And he does this because he cares about you and he loves you. He is compassionate. He has been through what you've been through, but to a much higher and deeper degree. Moreover, Jesus survived. He survived what you will face in this life, and he survived death. Jesus triumphed over death and the grave. He knows what it is to face these things. And for Jesus to sympathize with you is for Jesus to have shared the horrible sufferings of life with which you are familiar. Fellow brothers and sisters surely can sympathize with you. They can help you. And they should. That's what it is to exist in the communion of saints. It's wonderful to have brothers and sisters in Christ, older or younger, that can sympathize with you. But they can't help you like Jesus can help you. So, part two, we say that Jesus is... uh, uh, experiences were not just an example, but they were the work of redemption. So in this way, he is described, note, as a priest. The author tells you what a human priest does in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. The kind of priest to which the author refers is the one who served Israel within the sacrificial system. He is the high priest, that is, the one who has a special duty of making bloody sacrifices on behalf of the people, but especially on the Day of Atonement once a year. His role was necessary, Scripture says here, to act on behalf of men in relation to God. The priest is called by God to carry out his duty to offer gifts, that would be, say, peace and cereal offerings, and sacrifices for sin, especially on the Day of Atonement. But the high priest had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin, then for the sins of his family, before he could act as priest for the nation of Israel. He had to take care of his own problems first. And note how the author here is comparing that priest with Jesus, the high priest. Yes, the human priest can empathize with the people because he is beset with weakness. He goes through what they go through. Uh, through doubts, through temptations, through the struggles of this life, but also he is a sinner. Jesus is unlike that earthly high priest because he is sinless. Yet he can still somehow empathize with his people. The point here is that Israel needed a high priest who is actually a fellow sinner, but ultimately the people of God needed a high priest who was a unique savior, sinless. And Jesus' uniqueness is established by divine decree, that is, command. This means God appointed Jesus to be the high priest. In verse 5, in the English translation before you, it is easy to miss the significance of the establishment of Jesus' role as high priest. Verse 5 says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. It should be translated, So also the Christ did not exalt himself. So the Christ is a, an official title. 
And the author goes on to quote Psalm 2-7, which you know very well by now. You are my son, God says. Today I have begotten you. So notice here that Jesus did not exalt himself to the office of high priest. He had every right to. But he was so humble that he let his father exalt him to the position of high priest. Today you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Not given birth to him, but gave him that title. Further in verse 6, the author quotes Psalm 110. Psalm 110, by the way, is the most quoted psalm in all the the, uh, New Testament. Psalm 110, verse 4, he says of Christ, You are a priest forever, after the order, or like Melchizedek. Now we'll spend much more time on Melchizedek in later chapters. He's a fascinating figure. Uh, But suffice it to say for now, he appears in Genesis chapter 14, and he is king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. In that chapter, he uh, blessed Abraham, and Abraham gives him a tenth of the spoils of war. What's very odd about Melchizedek here is that he appears without human uh, genealogy. And Genesis is all about genealogies. That's all, I mean, it's a big part of the theme of Genesis. That's how people are established in time and space. But this guy shows up without any genealogy at all. Therefore, he, that is Melchizedek, reflects eternity both in personal terms and in priestly terms. The author's point in Hebrews 5 is that Jesus is much more like uh, the office uh, that Melchizedek holds, an internal one, rather than Aaron's office. Jesus is the eternal high priest of God for the purpose of serving his people for whom he died. Yet this Jesus, this high priest of God, was appointed to this high position because he first suffered death and hell in your place. Yes, Jesus can sympathize with you. He knows what you go through. But also, his work on this earth was salvific. He redeemed you through his sufferings. And so when Jesus lived on this earth, he offered up prayers and supplications, the author says, with loud cries and tears to God. So again, if you go back to the idea of someone helping you through their sympathy as experiencing the same thing, you know how comforting that is. But the person who, say, had cancer like you hasn't worked to heal you. Yes, you love to talk to that person who's been through cancer, but they can't heal you. They can only go so far. So when Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to God, he was not just availing himself to your situation. He was actually working to heal you. He was working to save you from your sins and God's wrath. One commentator notes that the author's purpose in these verses is to compare Jesus' work in prayer to the earthly high priest's work of offering sacrificial gifts. Further, the statement he was heard because of his reverence means that Jesus' offerings of prayers were accepted by God. They were an acceptable sacrifice, even his own prayers. In verse 8 he says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Although he's the eternal son of God, he somehow learned obedience through what he suffered. So Jesus has always been the eternal son of God even before he came man. But he experienced sonship differently when he became man and died on the cross. That Jesus was willing to do this, that he was willing to submit even to death, proved that he learned obedience. 
That is, he was obedient to the Father on this earth. The learning of Jesus refers to his new experience of suffering in this life, especially at the cross. It isn't that Jesus was ignorant. Rather, it was that the eternal Son of God had before this time not taken a body to himself. He takes a body and soul to himself. And he remains true God and true man, but with the additional experience now of suffering. Because Jesus' obedience was accepted by the Father in your place, the author says that Jesus was made perfect. That doesn't mean that he was imperfect before, but that after Jesus' death, he became just the right priest for the people of God. Jesus became, it says, the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. It was Jesus' perfect obedience in fulfilling the law and falling under God's anger at the cross which saved you. This work of Christ will result in the gratitude of obedience. So because Jesus was perfectly obedient, he's become the perfect high priest to help you in your time of need. So Jesus is not just a faraway God who can't relate to you. He is near. He can relate. He understands what you feel as you go through this life, which is called a veil of tears. Notice the Heidelberg Catechism 44 asks, Why is it added, He descended into hell? That is, my, that is, in my greatest temptations, I may be assured that Christ my Lord, by His inexpressible anguish, pains and terrors, which He suffered in His soul on the cross and before, has redeemed me from the anguish of torment and hell. Jesus' whole life was hellish, to be sure. But we confess that he began a descent into hell the day he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not literal hell, but figurative hell. There in that garden, he prays that the Father would take the cup of wrath from him at the cross. But he prays that the Father's will be done. According to Luke 22, he was in such agony... His sweat became as great drops of blood. Now think about that anguish. His sweat was as great drops of blood. And this is your Savior offering up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who is able to save him from death. Jesus was human as you are. Jesus did not want to face the cross. He did not want to face death. And surely he did not want to face the eternal anger of God in a moment any more than you would want to. I mean, think of that. But that's what Jesus did at the cross. He took on the eternal anger of God in an instance, experiencing utter hell in your place. So this is the way to think of this. Take your fears in this life and add the fear of facing a holy God in yourself because of your sin. And then multiply that by infinity and you begin to understand what Jesus was going through in the Garden of Gethsemane and at the cross. I mean, sometimes we think, oh, well, Jesus was God, so it wasn't so bad for him to die on the cross. No, of course it was terrible. Just like you. I mean, think of how scared you would be if you were to face that. You can't even imagine So now, brothers and sisters in Christ, don't you see how Christ can relate to your troubles in this life? 
Well, what if you are suffering a persecution or a cancer or a heart disease or a nagging health problem that won't go away or the loss of a child? In these things, sometimes you can feel as if your world is literally being torn apart. You can fear so deeply that you can't sleep at night, your heart races, and sometimes you feel like you can't even move. Well, Jesus understands that. Jesus understands how you feel in that instance. He faced real fear far beyond anything you could ever imagine and he triumphed over it. He did not become worried, which is sin, but he faced fear like a real man and conquered it, not just for himself, but for you. He took your sin of worry and disobedience to God's law upon himself and the Father imputed Jesus' perfect law doing obedience, His righteousness to you. So Jesus not only understands your struggles, He can sympathize, for sure, but He also worked to save you from your struggles eternally. Therefore, draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That means doing what you're doing this morning. Coming before God's throne of grace boldly Confessing your sins, but also confessing that you've been absolved of your sins through Jesus Christ. But of course, throughout the week, you approach the throne of God boldly in prayer, knowing that you can approach God any time. So to finish, I mean, consider the imagery here of approaching a king's throne. It's really quite striking. Again, this uh, the Hebrews falls into context of that culture and even uh, presumes a, a former culture in the Old Testament where people used to go into a king and queen's palaces. Anytime somebody did that, they had to be very careful, depending on the king or the queen and a particular country. So most of the time, the person would come into the palace, they have to make it through uh, you know, different levels of evaluation, and finally they come into the throne room of God. In every single case, the person coming into that throne room would do some sort of hand gesture. One was like this. Uh, some would fall on their faces before that king or queen. And the reason they did this is that king or queen could kill them. It could be over just a small thing. So the person coming into that throne room was very careful to make sure they did exact, the exact right thing or they would be killed. And all of this is to demonstrate that they were humble before this great king. Essentially, they were saying, please don't kill me. Well, brothers and sisters, you don't do this when you approach the throne of God. I mean, if there's anyone who has the right to kill you, it is God because of your sin. But the author's point here is, don't you see that because you wear robes of righteousness, because your sins have been washed away, because you've been accounted right in God's eyes, you may come into His throne room any time and be received with grace and mercy and favor. After all, it's not up to you, it's not up to your gestures, it's up to Christ and what He has done. That is profound. And that's why it says, brothers and sisters, go boldly into the throne room of God, where you receive grace and mercy in your time of need. Don't fall into yourself when you're struggling. Don't suffer by yourself. Go to the sympathetic Christ, the Lord, who is ruler 
of the universe. So in conclusion, you understand, and this is, should be the impression upon you, that as you go to the Father, you have the ear of the Most High God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no greater help in all the world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.